this is truth that matters, the unchanging truth of God. And everything around us is changing, but God doesn't change. That's what makes Him God. His truth, His Word, it's relevant, it's alive, the Bible says, is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And, and the Word of God doesn't change, friend. And it's relevant even today here in New South Wales, in Sydney, in 2020. And we've got to stick to what God's been saying. We've got to keep coming back to His Word and making sure in a season of harvest, in a season of release, in a new season, God takes us in there, that we stick to what it is He's called us to and not get busy with everything and everyone, but staying true to the call and the mandate that's come from God. And I love Jesus. I'm passionate about Jesus. I'm obsessed with Jesus. Are you? Not on Sundays, not when we think about Him and sing to Him. Are you truly obsessed and passionate about Jesus? Because to be honest, that's what this is really all about. And I also love His church. Now there's, you can love the church without loving Jesus. I think it's everywhere. I think a lot of people love the church, love being part of the family of God, but they forget about Jesus. But you cannot love Jesus and not love His church. When you love the head, you love His body. And we have issues, I understand, you just look around, you are all very different, and God made you like that. And it's good to celebrate our diversity, it's good to celebrate our culture, and different cultures, and different ages, and God puts this whole bunch of people that don't necessarily fit together, but He puts you together because it's a divine thing. And the danger in the church, friends, is that when we forget the divine nature of the church, we begin to see the issues with each other. It's not natural what's happening here this morning. Maybe there's a handful of you that would hang out if it wasn't for the church. But God's put all of us together, all of you together, and He makes you fit even though you don't know that you fit. It's not a natural thing. And that's why the church today, with all due respect, is full of people leaving and going to other churches and spending their eternity, their lives here on earth, trying to find out, do I fit in the church? What church do I fit? And, and here's what I want to say to you. God fits you where He puts you, not where you want to be. If you spend the rest of your life trying to fit, you won't find a church. The devil will make sure of that. But God puts us in a place. There one text in Isaiah 41, I think it is. It says, The poor and the needy search for water, but there is none. But I, the God of Israel, will not forsake him. And he says this, I'll make, barren, I'll make rivers flow in barren heights and, and I'll put uh, rivers in, in the, in the um, desert and all these wonderful things, the miraculous. But then he says, And I'll put in the, the desert, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive, all these trees and shrubs and bushes. I'm going to put them all in the desert and I'm going to put them together. And I don't know much about trees and shrubs and bushes, but this I know, that the trees, the shrubs, and the bushes that he mentions in Isaiah 41, they don't belong in the desert, and they don't all belong together. But God takes what doesn't belong, and He makes us belong. And it goes on to say, for the display of the Lord's splendor, that people may see, people may know, people may consider and understand, it's the hand of the Lord that has done this. This is not just good strategy. 
This is not just good leadership, although you have great leadership in the show. This is not some plan of man putting together and strategizing how we can all fit. This is the display for the splendor of God who takes what doesn't belong and He makes us belong and He makes us fit, but not so we can fit, but that we can serve His plan and His purpose while we're here as a local church. And so I'm delighted by the season you're in. I'm delighted by what it is God's saying. I love Jesus and I love His church. And I want to share a little bit around that. And while I talk about the church, can I just say this again? I know that I've said it many times, but the church is not the center of God's plan. You're not it. I'm not it. Jesus is the center of God's plan. The church is not the center of God's plan. Jesus is. But in saying that, the church is central to God's plan. So we're not the center of it, but we're central to it. So it's not about us, but we're involved in it about Jesus. And so we can't lose our way and make ourselves the central theme. Jesus Christ is. And so here, let's Matthew 16, very quickly, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? You've read this text, you've heard this text. But it's such a crucial text in light of the season you're in, in light of the harvest, in light of what's going on. The harvest is not a great church. That doesn't bring a harvest. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was asking his disciples, what do they say about me out there? They replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. In other words, you're a good dude doing some good things. Now let me tell you, if I was Jesus, I would be pretty ticked off with that response. Because Jesus isn't a good dude doing some good stuff. He is God. And so if I was Jesus, many reasons why I'm not. But if I was Jesus, I would have paused the conversation right there and said to my disciples, wait here, let me go show them who I am. And walk up to them and take them out. You're gone, you're gone, thunderbolts, lightning, very, very frightening if you know those songs. Yeah, just shake it up, shake it up, bring down fire, rain, hail, kill, destroy famine, and then say, okay, now who do you say I am? I would do that, and if you were honest, you would too, but you're not honest, so I'll be honest. I mean, do you see the text? Jesus was getting a false report of who he is, and he wasn't that bothered. Why? Because he moved the conversation from what do they say to what do you say? Because Jesus knew that if his disciples, if his church, if his followers knew truly who he is, then the world will know who he is because we represent him. So he moved the conversation of their false declaration. And he says, what about you? Verse 15, he asks, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God, you are deity. You're not some dude, some good prophet, some good philosopher, some good teacher, you are deity, you are God, you're the Messiah. It starts there, it stays there, and our strength is there, and that revelation matters very much for all of us in this room this morning, because who we see Christ as will see, show the people out there who Jesus really is. Deity, not a good dude, not just the son of God, not just a wannabe God, a mini God, an imitation God. We heard someone get up here this morning and read, he's the exact representation of the being of God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. 
He's not a wannabe God. He's not the mini God. He's not the imitation. He's the real deal. Peter said, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Deity starts with deity. Verse 17, and Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You got revelation from my Father about who I am. You can't catch this from someone else. You can't download this from a podcast. You can't even hear me preach about it and catch it. You've got to get your own revelation of Jesus from the Father who reveals to the people in this room this morning who Jesus is. That matters most, my dear friends. Verse 18, he said, I tell you that you are Peter. Suddenly, from deity, you now understand your identity. The crisis of identity is rampant in the world today. It's rampant in Sydney, Australia. And can I suggest, it's rampant even in the church today because people don't know who they are. And we get to choose if we want to be a man or a woman. I'm not mocking because we're confused. We give you choice and choose what you want to be. It doesn't matter what God intended for you. And then we come to church and we join the church and then we travel the world, going to conference to conference to hear about who we are because in our hearts there's a desire, I've got to know who I am. But here's the deal. You will never know who you are. I will never know who I am till I know who He is because my identity is wrapped up in Christ, not in my parents or anyone else. It's not new for us, but vital in a season of harvest. Now that you know who I am, let me tell you who you are. Peter. You are now Peter. And on this rock, there's this identity that comes for us. Please find your identity in Christ. Not in ministry, not even in the church. Ministry and church change. Leading churches, I've done the, had the privilege of it, and I don't now lead a church, but I lead NCMI. And these roles and responsibilities change. But if your identity is in what you do, you're finished. If your identity is in your family life or your kids, parents, forgive me, your identity is not in your kids. They're going to grow up and leave, and there goes your identity. Your identity is not in your job. You're going to get old, and if you've done well, you're going to retire. Then what? Jesus is the one who gives us our identity, not the stuff we carry, not the things we do, our revelation of Jesus. That's why it's so vital for the generations that are coming to get their revelation of Jesus, to be secure. And can you imagine what the church can do when we find our security in the revelation of who Jesus Christ really is? He says, and on this rock, for the first time in history, Jesus talks about the church he's building. Never mentioned before, but now that you know who I am, Let me tell you who you are. You are Peter. Can I just say, you're not the rock I'm building my church on. Can you imagine if Jesus was to build his church on a person? Anyone. What future does the church have if it's built on a man? I don't want to be part of that church. Because men are fickle. People are human beings. They are not perfect. And to build the church on a person, it has no future. Jesus didn't say, I'm building my church on you. He said, I'm building my church on your revelation of me. In other words, I'm building my church on me, not you. On this rock, I will build my church. On your revelation of me, I will build my church. 
And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Speaks of destiny, friends. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Speaks of duty and authority. The authority that we carry. Because we've understood He's given us the keys of the kingdom. I love that. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Speaks of dominion and victory and all these great truths. Let me just tell you this. According to what we've just read, His church will succeed. Regardless of how we feel, how the songs went this morning, how you woke up this morning and how you pushed through the rain, well done. His church will still succeed. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and go back to life and back to reality and back to work and all the stuff, His church will succeed. Why? Because He said it. His church, not the church, only His church. His church will succeed. Why? Because it's been positioned to succeed. It has the promise to succeed. I will build. The gates of hell will not overcome it. That's a promise. It's a promise, can I suggest, based on a process. This is something I had to learn and I'm learning. I will build. The verb tense shows continuation. A process. Always in a process. It's not finished. He didn't say, I built my church. Did you wake up now? That's great. Thank you. Thank you for waking them up. Lord. He didn't say, I built my church. He said, I will build my church. It's a verb. It's a continuation, meaning he's in the process. That gives me faith for people, faith for what we're involved in, because Jesus is still building this thing. It's not perfect, but we are being built together for what it is he's called. So get faith back, stirred again to believe the church that Jesus is building will succeed because of his promises. And I have such faith for that. And his possession. We are, he said, it's my church. I own this church has the power to succeed, has the plan to succeed. I just want to tell you the church of God will succeed regardless of how we feel. The good news is we're all part of that church. And so is this church, part of that church. And that's why we have faith and hope for what it is God's called us to. Now quickly go with me if you don't mind. I want to just speak out of this text this morning, Ephesians chapter 1. And I know you know this, but I have been praying for you. As I said, I really feel like the Lord's just wanting to Help us. How many of you know to fulfill what it is God's called us to? We need courage. Season of harvest sounds awesome. Good luck if you haven't got courage to take on and walk through and take ground. And it's not going to happen if we don't have courage. Now, I've grown up in the church. I was born in the church. I was born in the mission field. I was born in Africa. That's why I'm messed up accent. I was born in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. I was there for six weeks. People say, how was Africa? I don't know. I was there six weeks. I don't remember it. But I was born there, and then my dad just moving around, planting churches all over South Africa. Then I moved to Australia in 89, and then we're there for many years and moved to the U.S., then moved back to Oz, now back in the U.S. So that's my mess. I'm a mess. I said that. But always had this prophetic word over my life about being courageous. It's probably the most quoted. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, be strong and courageous. How many of you have had that or heard that? Be strong and courageous. Everywhere I got the prophetic word was be strong and courageous. Eventually, I'm like, there's a setup here. Someone's setting me up. And so that, I used to think that means I'm going to shout louder and be more and be stronger and all this stuff. I want to tell you, being courageous is not putting stuff on. In actual fact, I think a courageous person or a courageous culture is a people that take stuff off. And I do believe there's a culture that's got to continually be developed in this church. 
Culture is being set whether we like it or not. And God's not anti the culture out there, just so you know. And He's not anti your culture. We're not all trying to be like each other. God wants us to celebrate the different cultures because God made us like that. The Greeks and Italians and coffees and Aussies and whatever else you, where are you from? Now, Americans too, don't worry, yes. God's not anti those. He put us like that. He made us like that. Don't try and be like someone else. Right? If He made us like that, be that. Why be something else? That's fake. Okay, that's fine. So the point is that God's not anti our culture and we're not in a cultural war. How do you win people to Jesus if you've declared war on them? How do you love your neighbor if you told them that you war war against them? God's not a warring God against culture. However, there is a culture out there that is anti what God's called us to. And if we as this church, in this people, as a congregation here, are not developing and cultivating our culture, something or someone is. It's not just the elders. It's not just the leaders. It's you who call this place your home. You bring culture. You bring something. And if we're not creating the culture here, someone or something is. And I want to suggest it's not going to be for what God's about. It's going to be anti what God's about. And so there's a culture that we've got to keep cultivating and creating as a local church. And I believe it's a culture of courage. It's not a put on and a tag on. It's something we've got to work in and work out and work through and take stuff off and add stuff on and not just declare songs and not just Sunday mornings. All the time as a people being the church. I wonder, I'm a visitor here, but I wonder what true, the true culture is of this church. Not what would you like it to be. What is it? Is it one of courage? A handful of you got courage. Now all of us are living and not putting stuff on, not shouting more, living free and being a people of courage. Are you there, friends? And there are many churches in Scripture, many illustrations, I'm sure, that we can look at this morning of of what it means to be a courageous person. But but I want to talk about a courageous church. I, I want to talk about a courageous people. And for a few moments... I love the story of, the, of Paul planting the church in Ephesus. The church he planted there, although it wasn't perfect, and you can read obviously Acts chapter 18 and 19 is the story of Ephesus church. But it says of that, that city that the name of the Lord was held in high honor. It doesn't mean that everyone believed, but there was a reverence and awe of Jesus in that city. Not in the church, in that city. Imagine that in Sydney again. Can you imagine? I want to tell you, there is no honor or even reverence to Jesus in this nation. And I'm sorry, I know that there's some great churches doing some good stuff, but I talk to most people here, they don't even have a concept of Jesus. There's not even a God who, our religion, I'm not interested. You see, when you talk religion, that's not an honor. The name of the Lord was held in high honor. How many of you know that means they had to be a courageous people? Not perfect, but courageous. And I do believe there's a season of coming for our great, this great nation and for the church in this nation where we're going to see the name of the Lord being held in high honor again. And not that everyone will believe, but many will come to Jesus. Not come to religion, come to Jesus. Who will get on their knees. And we see politicians and presidents and prime ministers bowing to Jesus again. Revering someone greater than themselves, not using the system, but honoring because of Jesus a way. And that church has it begins with the church. (laughs) 
You're very quiet and it's not like you, but I'm not in America. That's why. So just pretend you're American and amen, brother. Now and then it'll be great. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1 quickly, please. I want to say it's true that with vision, people per- without vision, people perish, the Bible says. But also without courage, dreams die. Dreams die without courage. We need courage, friends. I want to say that there's some things we can see from what Paul writes and what he highlights about that church in Ephesus that I think can help us again to develop this culture. Not have a moment of this, but be the people who are developing a culture of courage to take the ground. This is a season of inheritance, season of increase. I believe that. God's increasing. The Bible tells us that the increase of His government is the increasing of God. Whether we like it or not, I want to be a part of that. Greater impact, greater influence coming from the church, through the church. We begin to influence society rather than be influenced by society. It's God's way, guys. It's, and I, I don't know, He's going to do it, but I'm saying do it with us. Do it with this church, GGC, and your history of 30 years. Incredible. But what lies ahead? Great things if you stay the course and stay courageous and allow the culture to be developed of courage. But you've got to be individuals who make that up. Can I just say that in taking our inheritance and tell you, there's so much talk about mountains being moved and, and I get it, friends, but I, I've been challenged a little while ago by the Lord that we, not all mountains are obstacles. Because we take truth. We all, you know, I grew up in the church and the whole charismatic movement, so we got faith to move mountains, so anything that's in your way, just move it. And, and, and that's true, but in saying that, not all mountains are obstacles. Some mountains are inheritance. And some of us are cursing what's before us, yet God's given us the ability and the the courage to take it rather than curse it. Maybe the mountain that's before you for your harvest is part of your harvest. And you're sitting there going, God, move the mountain. And if you've got faith to move it, move it. And God said, no, no, take your mountain. I want to give you the courage to take a mountain, not to curse it and try and remove something that is part of your inheritance. Hello? May God give us discernment in this room to know what's to be moved and what's to be taken in this season. <laughs> we know that Caleb, you know the story of Caleb, the old dude, all the old people suddenly get excited. Oh, yeah, we go. No, no, all people. But the thing about Caleb was he served God wholeheartedly and faithfully. And he came to the moment where he said, give me my mountain, my inheritance, my hill country, not it's too much to take, it's in the way, let's move it. No, give me my inheritance, my mountain. There's some of us in this room, this season, you're trying to curse something. God's saying it's actually yours to take. And this morning he wants to remind us and give us fresh courage to take some territory rather than to try and move territory. Are you there, friends? This, this, I'm going to preach to these guys because they're loud. You guys, and they're old over there. The old people are there. No, I'm just, yeah, thank you. I'm going to now preach to you guys. That's, anyway, you don't have to be, but just are you hearing the heart? Don't curse things that are not. I've, I've had to repent of some of that because everything in my way move. It's getting in my way. And the Lord said to say, no, 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 that's tyrant. I, part of that is your inheritance. I'm going to give you the ability and the strength and courage to take those mountains rather than move them. Ephesians chapter 1, and for time's sake, quickly, let's go to verse 17. Paul writes and he says, I keep asking. Now, when you pray these things, you know, I love to listen to people pray. And I'll tell you why. Because when you pray, you hear what's really in their heart. When people talk is one thing. When people preach with all due respect, you can say the right thing. But when you're praying, 
<laughs> you're speaking honestly to the Father. What's really inside comes out. And Paul's writing and he says, I keep asking. This is not a one-off prayer. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now I pause and I use this moment all the time to say, be careful when you ask for revelation. Revelation in itself is God's invitation for you and I to change something in our lives. When God's truth becomes our truth, that's revelation. But for God's truth to become my truth, something in my life has to change to adjust God's, to, to embrace God's truth. So can I just be straight up this morning, Aussies? You know what? We hear messages, we read the Word, we download podcasts, we come here, we hear the Word and it all sits here. And we love it and we amen it and we can quote it and we go and regurgitate it to the world out there from here. It's not revelation. Because for truth to move from head to heart, something has to die and change in my heart for His truth. So we have head knowledge and live it, don't live it out, but we offload it as religion to someone else. You know what it does? Brings death. Why? Because it's not real. So Paul says, I keep asking that the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, an invitation for us to adjust our lives every time God speaks. We need to adjust. When I read the Bible, it's a mirror, not just a lens. I don't stand up here and offload my revelation, my preach. I've got to read the Bible as a mirror. All the challenges you're getting from me, I'm getting from the same book because God's challenging me to move from here to here. And so Paul says, I keep asking that the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom. Not that you have wisdom. And, and let me just tell you, it's wisdom of heaven, not earthly wisdom. And can I just say that experience is not, worldly experience is not necessarily heavenly wisdom. You are awesome and you need to travel with me, sir. But seriously, we, we want to give people our experience as a download from heaven. Well, you know, when Nicole and I are having marriage problems, this is what we do. Well, that's great. You're not Nicole and you're not me. Just because it worked for us doesn't mean it's going to work for you. It's just experience. And parents are putting experiences on kids that's not necessarily wisdom from heaven. Pastors are putting... <laughs> I better preach here. Pastors, pastors are putting stuff on people with all due respect, with hearts are good, but because we have experience, we need, world, we need godly, heavenly wisdom. Especially if we're going to take regions we've yet to take and reach out to people who've yet to be reached. It's not going to be the revelation of old. It's not going to be the wisdom of the world. It's not going to be caught from Yonggi Cho in South Korea. It's going to be you and I on our knees being led by God, keeping asking for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. But be careful what you offload because it better be from your heart, not your head. But he goes on and he says, why? I'm going to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? That you may know Him better. So the first culture and the most important culture to be a people who are courageous is we need the culture of Christ. Ah, oh, we know this. I'm not asking, do you know this? What culture is here? And not by the songs you sing. Not by what's preached on a Sunday. The culture you and I are pursuing, is it to know Christ better? 
Not to have encountered Him and been saved. That's awesome. But it's not a one-off revelation. I got saved many years ago. I can't live on that salvation that I got one day. I've got to grow in my revelation of Christ daily for me, then also for my family, and then also for the leadership I'm involved in. I better be getting more revelation, not living on what was. Are you there, friends? I'm not asking, is Christ important? He is central to it all. We read that. And for you and I to be courageous, the more I know Christ, the more I walk with Him. Honestly, friends, the more courageous I'll be. Not a put on, just reality. He gives me courage. He gives me faith. He allows me to say these things. Even people look at me horribly, and there's some of you doing that this morning, and I'm not reacting. I'm like, my revelation of Him allows me to say this. Not arrogance, authentic. Those guys out there need to see authentic followers of Jesus. That actually, if, if investigated, you, your life was to be investigated. Would you be found guilty of being a follower of Jesus? Not of knowing about Him and talking. Your lifestyle, would you be found guilty? You truly are a follower of Jesus. Knowing Christ. That you may know Him better. The message, Eugene Peterson's message says, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing Him personally. The culture of Christ. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise boast about their wisdom, or the strong boast about their strength, or the rich boast about their riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that they have the understanding of knowing me. Our boast is in our knowledge and our understanding and revelation of Jesus. That's what we brag about. Nothing else. We know Him. That's what makes us who we are. Not what the stuff I have or the church we're in. Christ is the revelation. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, well-worn text, I know. He says, I want to know Christ. And I want to stop and say, Paul, what's your problem, dude? You know Him. I mean, I, I love your encounter with him on the road to Damascus. We all use your testimony. You were blinded and you got on, knocked off your horse or donkey or whatever and you couldn't speak at all. What happened? You saw Christ. You, yeah, but he didn't stay there. He was like, I want to know Christ. My obsession is knowing Christ rather than knowing about him or have met him once on the road to Damascus. My wife and I use this illustration many times. Been married 22 years. I remember, I'm not a crying dude. I'm not very emotional. You believe it or not, I'm not. I try to be, but it doesn't work. So I haven't cried many times in my life. But when my wife walked down that altar to say yes to me, it was an overwhelming moment for me. But let me tell you, if we always reference our, wed our wedding as the basis for our marriage, what kind of marriage do we have? If every time we talk about our marriage, we pull out the, the photos, say, remember, oh, baby, you were so pretty that day before you had three kids and you were younger and thinner and all the nonsense. I mean, what kind of marriage have I got if we always got to go back to the place where it started? My wife doesn't want to know what I thought about her then. That was 22 years ago. She wants to know today, this morning, while I FaceTimed her, Telling her, I love you, baby. I miss you, baby. Why? Because it matters now, not then. What marriage have I got based on a few photographs of our history? Friends, what relationship have you got with Jesus if it's based on where you got in? 
And while marriage is vital and important, your walk with Jesus matters more. Because that walk determines everything else we're involved in. Are you with me? You've got to create a culture of Christ by being followers of Christ. And when Paul came to Christ, it says in Philippians 3, he changed his perspective. All the stuff he had, all his achievements, they were absolutely a waste of time in his pursuit of Christ. In actual fact, some of the achievements got in the way of him knowing Jesus. He said, I consider them nothing worthless. I wonder if that true be this morning for you and I. The culture we're developing, is it the stuff we carry and the influence we've got, or is it our revelation of Jesus? Because that's the culture that gives us courage, not the stuff we have, who Jesus is. He counted all things lost. He said, I want to be found in Him. I want people to meet me and know that I'm, I'm bought, I'm purchased, I belong to Jesus. I don't just belong to GC. I belong to Jesus. A new possession, the righteousness of God. Paul received right standing before God when he knew Christ. It's his crescendo, it's his ultimate, it's all about him and A.W. Tozer said, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Verse 18, let's read on. It says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Revelation, your heart. Imagine that. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He's called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. Culture number one of Christ. Culture number two of calling. I, I, I know it's been breaking over, but here's the thing. Too many people think that the pastors are the called ones and we are the attenders who support the call. I'm going to tell you this morning, you and I are all called by God. And while we have roles to play, we are all called. And Paul prays and he says, not only do you need the revelation of Christ so you know Him better, but actually that you'll understand the hope to which you've been called. There's got to be the hope that is needed in this church. Honestly, friends, there's such hopelessness out there. Paul wasn't writing to the world. He's writing to the church and saying, you, the church, need to understand the hope to which you've been called. And I want to say to you this morning, you can't give hope to the world if you're not having hope, if you're not living with hope. And there needs to be, this needs to be a culture, not a put on, not a makeup. A culture of hope makes you courageous. Hope to which you've been called. I think today's church seems more focused on surviving just making it, just getting through the week, getting through the, stay away from the world, don't mix with the world, survive the culture, hurry Jesus, come back, we're in our holy huddles waiting. And I can't find in Scripture ever God allowing that to happen. In actual fact, the Holy Spirit's empowered us not to survive culture, but actually to transform the culture. You will receive power to be witnesses, not to hide away and hang on and make it. And I'm careful with this because I don't want to rah-rah us and get us cheerleading each other this morning. But there's got to be a shift in our focus, friend. We need this revelation today that we've been called by God. That God picked us. You didn't pick Him. He picked you. With all your nonsense and all your stuff and all your issues, He calls you and you need to know that there's a hope to which we've been called. It's not destined to fail. It's destined to succeed because He called you. Probably the most challenging scripture in the Bible for me is Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine GGC in a season of harvest, growing in their culture of courage that are overflowing with hope? Does that represent you? Not as a church, as individuals. It doesn't me, and I want it to be. May the God of hope, meaning what? We need God in us, not us put it on Him. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. So when the devil takes your joy and takes your peace, you lose hope. But may we overflow with hope, not in your flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that represent you and I? Because I believe God wants us to be a people who have so-called revelation of hope, not arrogance, but we are people of hope, living it out. And I watch the devil. He uses the method of gradualism to wear down the people of God. He wears us down gradually with temptation. You know, the devil, he seeks to destroy us, but I don't believe he's been given the power to destroy us. He's been given the power to distract us. And so he distracts us. He destroys us by distracting us even when it comes to this thing of joy and peace. Trials and tragedies. You know, God always uses ordinary people, friends, always. So if you feel ordinary, the right person, He's choosing ordinary. You are ordinary. And if you think you're not, you are. I'm ordinary. But He takes ordinary and He says, I want to use you for extraordinary because I'm an extraordinary God and I'm picking you. I've chosen you. Quickly, I've got to land this. Let's quickly finish the Scriptures here, all these great points. Verse 19, he says, And his incomparably great power, dunamis. His incomparably great power, dunamis. For us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength, kratos. He exerted energia when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name, invoked not only in the present one, but also in the one to come. We need not just a culture of calling, a culture of Christ, but a culture of confidence in His power. Competence. This verse 19, friends, is jam-packed with incredible words. Paul's trying to make a point here. When Paul talks about the exceeding greatness of God's power, he intends for us to imagine power beyond imagining. He uses four power words that is a context of essentially similar. similar. Dunamis, power, where we get our word dynamite. You've heard about that. He uses energia, meaning harnessed energy, power at work. He uses kratos, the presence of significant power, manifested power. And he uses iskis. Sorry, I don't know. I can't speak. I'm not Greek. Forgive me. But anyway, strength, whether physical or moral. And he's now... Showing us this four-pronged word, friends. Are you hearing this? This is not some optional extra. We've got to get this. Because I think that too many people are living for victory, trying to find victory rather than from victory. And this is not Americanism and hyper-faith prosperity. This needs to be a shift in our mindset this morning. We either believe what the world says or the Bible says. And I want to choose the Word, honestly, because we're never going to take and have courage if we don't believe the Word of God. And it doesn't mean that it's easy for us, but I love sport. I really do. I'm confessing my sin. I love all sport. I even watched some cricket yesterday, and I see Sydney won, so well done to you guys. But, but, but I love all kinds of sport. But the problem is I often most sports games are on when I'm in a meeting. I'm always in meetings. So I love to record me, uh, sport and go home and watch. How many of you confess your sins do that too? The problem is that all my friends know that, so I usually find out the score before I watch the game. 
but I'm diehard and I'll watch anyway. But there are times I watch the game, knowing that we won the game, my team, and I'm watching going, gee, I don't know how we won. Are you sure? And I go back to Google and did we win? And, and we did. And I realized. And then one day I had this little revelation for me. I was saying, I was watching going, I want, imagine these guys playing the game, knowing that they already won the game. How different they would play the game. They might even enjoy it a little more. They may even risk a little and try some new tricks and allow other guys to do things well because they've already won. Now, this is not hyper faith. We know the score. Just read the end. And you've got to keep flicking back to the end, I know, through the trials. It doesn't mean we're exempt from trials, cancer, divorce, sickness, disease. It's out there, and we know we all face it. Here's the reality. We're not exempt from it, but we know the score. We should be people of hope and people of victory and people who can live through some of this stuff a whole lot better because we know the score. We might even enjoy the harvest more knowing the score. We might have more courage to speak to people, more courage to talk to people, because we know how it ends. But when we're surviving and just making it, and are we going to get there? Are we going to do it? I need to get to, and you've got to pump your way up for victory rather than from victory. You've got to shift our thinking. And Paul prays for this revelation. I want to tell you guys, you are ready where you need to be because of who Christ has called us to be. We've got to not be survivors in this season. The last thing I want to say, verse 22. And God placed all things. Say all things. God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. To me, that's a culture of compassion and consistency. And again, it's linked to the other one that I made. We need a culture of compassion and consistency. We can't be up and down like your weather. We can't be moody and reach the world. You can't allow. We can have reality. We need to be real, but we can't allow our circumstances. We have to get to a place of compassion and consistency. And the only way for that to happen is for us to understand we're seated where we are because He's seated where He is. See, I, I personally think that the church today is very religious. And I'll tell you why. Because we have to do things to prove things. And the moment you've got to do to prove you're religious. The moment I have to show and prove I'm religious. And I don't believe we want to be, but we are when we have to. And so we create the culture so people come in and get saved in the harvest. And they come and be part of the show. And suddenly they have to do all this stuff. To prove rather than I'm seated where I am. Friends, it's way easier to reach people when you minister to them from position rather than try and fight to get a position. Are you with me? And religion is, is tragic and it destroys. And in actual fact, Jesus dealt with religion on the cross. And I, I know that some of us don't like to hear this and now this is where we get a bit awkward, but there's some religion that needs to be taken off some of us this morning. And it's not because your heart's wrong, it's because your heart's right, but you've carried stuff that you don't need to. And we're going to shake off some of the nonsense that's been put on us by culture or even upbringing or even church or even preachers. 
Our hearts are good, friends, but we're not perfect. And we put stuff on. And if you do this, then God can do this. And if you believe this, then... No, no. He did it. And when I'm free, I can reach people. When I'm carrying stuff, they're going to carry what I carry. It's a dangerous thing. And I've got to always get before God and take stuff off before I preach. Because I don't want to put stuff on anyone. My stuff's my stuff, not your stuff. I want to see people liberated. Jesus came to liberate. He destroyed religion on the cross. He put religion to death. Unfortunately, sometimes we begin to get religious and live in religion. And it's not because our hearts are wrong, as I said. It's because we're embracing wrong things. Let's just close our eyes. Is that okay, Leah? Can I just pray? I, I, um, it's a silly illustration, but it's the best I have. My son, well, my sons, all three of my sons love clothes. It's something they got from their mother, I think. And they like to buy clothes, and I like to bless my kids when I can, and my youngest boy, Jude, I remember we found him this shirt. I want to just tell you, I like this shirt so much. If it had my size, I would have bought it for me. But, and I bought this shirt for him, Nicole, and I bought it for him when I was a kid and really young. And I, I remember giving it to Jude saying, hey, boy, I got you this shirt. And he was like, oh, thanks so much, Dad. And he took that shirt and he went and hung it up in his closet. Every day he came out of his room and said, hey, Dad, thanks for my shirt. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Eventually I began thinking, does he really like this shirt? He's not wearing it. He thanks me for it every day, but where is it? And then the last, the Sunday morning came and it was church day for us and he put his shirt on and he's like, Dad, thank you for my shirt. Honestly, that day I knew he liked his shirt because he actually was wearing it. Not thanking me for it, but wearing it. And I think at times, if we're honest, friends, we tell people about Jesus. We tell people what He's done. We come to meetings and we sing and declare and thank Him. And let me tell you, He, he paid the ultimate price. But I, I, I don't know if He really knows we appreciate it if we're just thanking Him for it. I think the greatest way to honor Jesus for what He did on the cross is to walk in the finished work of what He did on the cross. Not to thank Him alone, and that's good, and not to go and tell others, but actually put on that shirt. Put on the shirt of salvation, the finished work of the cross. Stop doing things that He's already taken care of. Stop asking for breakthrough in things He's already given you breakthrough for. The sad thing for me is that my son, I wanted to wear that on Sunday, the Lord's Day. He wanted to wear that to church. Do you only wear the shirt of finished work on a Sunday when you're reminded? Or is it an everyday event? Or we just walk in the finished work of the cross? Friends, it's time to be free. Not to get saved, to be free. Because whatever we carry, whatever we have, we're going to put on others. Can't give what you haven't got. I want to tell you, when we're free, when we're wearing His shirt, the finished way, it gives us such courage. And we never can be above people. We never judge people. It's so hard to judge someone when you've understood the forgiveness of God. But it's easy to be religious and point out people's faults when you're earning what you do. We need no more judging. We need the finished work, loving, caring for people out there who are messed up. The harvest is ready but it's messed up. That's why they need God. The 
but they need us to be free so we can bring freedom.